Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. A Night of Horror by Dick Donovan My dear old chum, before you leave England for the East, I claim the redemption of a promise you made to me some time ago, that you would give me the pleasure of a week or two of your company. Besides, as you may have already guessed, I have given up the folly of my bachelor days, and have taken unto myself the sweetest woman that ever walked the face of the earth. We have been married just six months, and are as happy as the day is long. And then, this place is entirely after your own heart. It will excite all your artistic faculties, and appeal with irresistible force to your romantic nature. To call the building a castle is somewhat pretentious, but I believe it has been known as the castle ever since it was built, more than two hundred years ago. Hester is delighted with it, and if either of us was in the least degree superstitious, we might see or hear ghosts every hour of the day. Of course, as becomes a castle, we have a haunted room, though my own impression is that it is haunted by nothing more fearsome than rats. Anyway, it is such a picturesque, curious sort of chamber that if it hasn't a ghost, it ought to have. But I have no doubt, old chap, that you will make one of us, for, as I remember, you have always had a love for the eerie and creepy, and you cannot forget how angry you used to get with me sometimes for chafing you about your avowed belief in the occult and supernatural, and what you were pleased to term the inexplicable phenomena of psychomancy. However, it is possible you have got over some of the errors of your youth, but whether or not, calm down and rest assured that you will meet with the heartiest of welcomes. Your old pal, Dick Dirkman, Bleak Hill Castle. The above letter was from my old friend and college chum, who, having inherited a substantial fortune, and being passionately fond of the country and country pursuits, had thus the means of gratifying his tastes to their fullest bent. Although Dick and I were very differently constituted, we had always been greatly attached to each other. In the best sense of the term, he was what is generally called a hard-headed, practical man. He was fond of saying he never believed in anything he couldn't see, and even that which he could see he was not prepared to accept as truth without due investigation. In short, Dick was neither romantic, poetical, nor, I am afraid, artistic in the literal sense. He preferred facts to fancies, and was possessed of what the world generally called an unimpressionable nature. For nearly four years I had lost sight of my friend, as I had been wandering about Europe as tutor and companion to a delicate young nobleman. His death had set me free, but I had no sooner returned to England then I was offered and accepted a lucrative appointment in India, and there was every probability of my being absent for a number of years. On returning home, I had written to Dick, telling him of my appointment, and expressing a fear that unless we could snatch a day or two in town, I might not be able to see him, as I had so many things to do. I had not heard of his marriage. His letter gave me the first intimation of that fact— and I confess that when I got his missive, I 
experienced some curiosity to know the kind of lady he had succeeded in captivating. I had always had an idea that Dick was cut out for a bachelor, for there was nothing of the lady's man about him. And now Dick was actually married, and living in a remote region, where most town-bred people would die of ennui. I did not hesitate about accepting Dick's cordial invitation. I determined to spare a few days, at least, of my somewhat limited time, and duly notified Dick to that effect, giving him the date of my departure from London, and the hour at which I should arrive at the station nearest to his residence. Bleak Hill Castle was situated in one of the most picturesque parts of Wales. Consequently, on the day appointed, I found myself comfortably ensconced in a smoking carriage of a London and Northwestern train, and towards the close of the day, the time of the year was May, I was the sole passenger to alight at the wayside station, where Dick awaited me with a smart dog-cart. His greeting was hearty and robust, and when his man had packed in my traps, he gave the handsome little mare that drew the cart the reins, and we spanked along the country roads in rare style. A drive of eight miles through the bracing Welsh air meant that it was dark when we arrived, and I had no opportunity of observing the external characteristics of Bleak Hill Castle. But there was nothing in the interior that suggested bleakness. It was warm, comfortable, and well lit. Following the maid up a broad flight of stairs, and a longer lofty and echoing corridor, I found myself in a large and comfortably furnished bedroom. A bright wood fire burned upon the hearthstone, for although it was May, the temperature was still very low on the Welsh hills. Hastily changing my clothes, I made my way to the dining-room, where Mrs. Dirkman emphasized the welcome her husband had already given me. She was an exceedingly pretty and rather delicate-looking little woman, in striking contrast to her great, bluff, burly husband. A few neighbours had been gathered together to meet me, and we sat down, a dozen all told, to a perfect dinner. It was perhaps natural, when the coffee and cigar stage had arrived, that the conversation should turn upon our host's residence, by way of affording me, a stranger to the district, some information. Of course, the information was conveyed to me in a scrappy way, but I gathered in substance that Bleak Hill Castle had originally belonged to a Welsh family, chiefly distinguished by the extravagance and gambling propensities of its male members. It had gone through some exciting times, and numerous strange and startling stories were told of it. There were stories of wrong, and shame, and death and more than a suggestion of dark crimes. One of these stories turned upon the mysterious disappearance of the wife and daughter of a young scion of the house, whose career had been somewhat shady. His wife was considerably older than he, and it was generally supposed that he had married her for money. His daughter, a girl of about twelve, was an epileptic patient, while the husband and father was a gloomy, disappointed man. Suddenly, the wife and daughter disappeared. At first, no surprise was felt. But then, some curiosity was expressed to know where they had gone to, 
and curiosity led to wonderment, and wonderment to rumour, for people will gossip, especially in a country district. Mr. Greta Jones, the husband, had to submit to much questioning as to where his wife and child were staying. But being sullen and morose of temperament, he contented himself by brusquely saying, they had gone to London. But as no one had seen them go, and no one had heard of their going, the statement was accepted as a perversion of fact. Nevertheless, incredible as it may seem, no one thought it worth while to insist upon an investigation, and a few weeks later Mr. Greta Jones himself went away, and to London, as was placed beyond doubt. For a long time Bleak Hill Castle was shut up, and throughout the countryside it began to be whispered that sights and sounds had been seen and heard at the castle which were suggestive of things unnatural, and soon it became widely believed that the place was haunted. On the principle of giving a dog a bad name, you have only to couple ghosts with the name of an old country residence like this castle for it to fall into disfavour, and to be generally shunned. As might have been expected in such a region, the castle was shunned, no tenant could be found for it. It was allowed to go to ruin, and for a long time was the haunt of smugglers. They were cleared out in the process of time, and at last hard-headed, practical Dick Dirkman heard of the place through a London agent, went down to see it, took a fancy to it, bought it for an old song, and soon converted the half-ruined building into a country gentleman's home, and thither he carried his bride— such was the history of Bleak Hill Castle as I gathered it, in outline during the post-prandial chat on that memorable evening. On the following day, I found the place all that my host had described it in his letter to me. Its situation was beautiful in the extreme, and from its windows there was a magnificent view of landscape and sea. He and I rambled about the house— he evinced a keen delight in showing me every nook and corner, in expatiating on the beauties of the locality generally, and of the advantages of his dwelling-place in particular. Why he reserved taking me to the so-called haunted chamber until the last I never have known. But so it was, and as he threw open the heavy door and ushered me into the apartment, he smiled ironically and remarked, "'Well, old man,' This is the ghost's den, and as I consider that a country mansion of this kind should have its haunted room, I have let this place go untouched. But I needn't tell you that I regard the ghost stories as rot. I did not reply to my friend at once, for the room absorbed my attention. It was unquestionably the largest of the bedrooms in the castle, and, while in keeping with the rest of the house, had characteristics of its own. The walls were panelled with dark oak. The floor was polished oak. There was a deep, V-shaped bay formed by an angle of the castle, and in each side of the bay was a diamond-paned window, and under each window an oak seat, which was also a chest with an ancient iron lock. A large wooden bedstead with massive hangings stood in one corner. The rest of the furniture was of a very nondescript character. In a word, the room was picturesque, 
and to me it at once suggested all sorts of dramatic situations of a weird and eerie character. There was a very large fireplace with a most capacious hearthstone, on which stood a pair of ponderous and rusty steel dogs. Finally, the window commanded superb views, and altogether my fancy was pleased, and my artistic susceptibilities appealed to in an irresistible manner, so that I replied to my friend thus, "'I like this room, Dick. Let me occupy it, will you?' He laughed. "'Well, <laughs> upon my word, you're an eccentric fellow to want to give up the comfortable den which I've assigned to you for this mouldy, draughty, dingy old lumber-room. However—here—' he shrugged his shoulders—'there is no accounting for tastes, so I'll tell the servants to put the bed in order, light a fire, and cart your traps from the other room.' I was glad I had carried my point for I frankly confess to having romantic tendencies. I was fond of old things, old stories and legends, old furniture, and anything that was removed above the dull level of commonplaceness. This room, in a certain sense, was unique, and I was charmed with it. When pretty little Mrs. Dirkman heard of the arrangements, she said, with a laugh that did not conceal a certain nervousness, I am sorry you are going to sleep in that wretched room. It always makes me shudder, for it seems so uncomfortable. Besides, you know, although Dick laughs at me and calls me a little goose, I am inclined to believe there may be some foundation for the current stories. Anyway, I wouldn't sleep in the room for a crown of gold. I do hope you will be comfortable, and not be frightened to death by gruesome apparitions." I hastened to assure my hostess that I should be comfortable enough, while as for apparitions, I was not likely to be frightened by them. The rest of the day was spent in exploring the country round about, and after dinner Dick and I played billiards until one o'clock, and then, having drained a final peg, I retired to rest. When I reached the haunted chamber— I found that much had been done to give an air of cheerfulness and comfort to the place. Some rugs had been laid about the floor, a modern chair or two introduced, a wood fire blazed on the hearth. On a little occasional table that stood near the fire was a silver jug, filled with hot water, and an antique decanter containing spirits, together with lemon and sugar, in case I wanted a final brew. I could not but feel grateful for my host and hostess's thoughtfulness, and having donned my dressing-gown and slippers, I drew a chair near the fire, and proceeded to fill my pipe for a few whiffs, previous to tumbling into bed. This was a habit of mine that afforded me solace, and conduced to restful sleep. So I lit my pipe, and fell to pondering, and trying to see if I could draw any suggestions as to my future from the glowing embers. Suddenly, a remarkable thing happened. My pipe was drawn gently from my lips and laid upon the table, and at the same moment I heard what seemed to me to be a sigh. For a moment or two I felt confused, and wondered whether I was awake or dreaming. But there was the pipe on the table, and I could have taken the most solemn oath that to the best of my belief it had been placed there— by unseen hands. 
My feelings, as may be imagined, were peculiar. It was the first time in my life that I had ever been the subject of a phenomenon capable of being attributed to supernatural agency. After a little reflection, and some reasoning with myself, however, I tried to believe that my own senses had made a fool of me, and that in a half-somnolent and dreamy condition I had removed the pipe myself, and placed it on the table. Having come to this conclusion, I divested myself of my clothing, extinguished the two tall candles, and jumped into bed. Although usually a good sleeper, I did not go to sleep at once, but lay thinking of many things. Mingling with my changing thoughts was a low, monotonous undertone, nature's symphony, of booming sea on the distant beach, and a bass piping, rising occasionally to a shrill and weird upper note of the wind. From its situation the house was exposed to every wind that blew, hence its name, Bleak Hill Castle. The booming sea and wind had a lullaby effect, and I fell asleep. How long I slept I do not know, but I awoke suddenly and with a start, for it seemed as if a stream of ice-cold water was pouring over my face. With an impulse of indefinable alarm I sprang up in bed, and then a strange, awful, ghastly sight met my view. The sight I gazed upon appalled me, yet was I fascinated with a horrible fascination that rendered it impossible for me to turn my eyes away. I seemed bound by some strange, weird spell. My limbs appeared to have grown rigid. There was a sense of burning in my eyes. My mouth was parched and dry, my tongue swollen, so it seemed. Of course, these were mere sensations, but they were sensations I never wished to experience again. They were sensations that tested my sanity, and the sight that held me in the thrall was truly calculated to test the nerves of the strongest. There, in mid-air, between floor and ceiling, surrounded by a trembling, nebulous light, weird beyond the power of any words to describe, was the head and bust of a woman. The face was paralyzed into an unutterably awful expression of stony horror. The long black hair was tangled and dishevelled, and the eyes appeared to be bulging from the head. But this was not all. Two ghostly hands were visible. The fingers of one were twined savagely in the black hair, and the other grasped a long-bladed knife, and with it hacked and gashed and tore and stabbed at the bare white throat of the woman, and the blood gushed forth from the jagged wounds, reddening the spectre hand, and flowing in one continuous stream to the oak floor, where I heard it drip, 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 until my brain seemed as if it would burst, and I felt as if I was going mad. Then I saw with my strained eyes the unmistakable sign of death pass over the woman's face. And next the devilish hands flung the mangled remnants away, and I heard a low chuckle of satisfaction. Heard, I say, and swear it as plainly as I have ever heard anything in this world. The light had faded. 
the vision of crime and death had gone, and yet the spell held me. Although the night was cold, I believe I was bathed in perspiration. I think I tried to cry out. Nay, I'm sure I did. But no sound came from my burning, parched lips. My tongue refused utterance. It clove to the roof of my mouth. Could I have moved so much as a joint of my little finger, I could have broken the spell. At least such was the idea that occupied my half-stunned brain. It was a nightmare of waking horror, and I shudder now as I recall it all. But the revelation, for revelation it was, had not yet reached its final stage. Out of the darkness was once more evolved a faint, phosphorescent glow, and in the midst of it appeared the dead body of a young girl, with her throat all gashed and bleeding, the red blood flowing in a crimson flood over her nightrobe, and the cruel, spectral hands, dyed with her blood, appeared again, and grasped her, and lifted her, and bore her along. Then that vision faded, and a third appeared. This time I seemed to be looking into a gloomy, damp, arched cave or cellar, and the horror that froze me was intensified, as I saw the hands busy preparing a hole in the wall at one end of the cave, and presently they lifted two bodies, the body of the woman and the body of the young girl, all gory and besmirched, and the hands crushed them into the hole in the wall, and then proceeded to brick them up. All these things I saw as I have described them, and this I solemnly swear to be the truth, as I hope for mercy at the supreme judgment. It was a vision of crime, a vision of merciless, pitiless, damnable murder. How long it all lasted, I don't know. Science has told us that dreams which seem to embrace a long series of years last but seconds, and in the few moments of consciousness that remain to the drowning man, his life scroll is unrolled before his eyes. This vision of mine, therefore, may only have lasted seconds, but it seemed to me hours, years, nay, an eternity. With that final stage in the ghostly drama of blood and death, the spell was broken, and flinging my arms wildly about, I know that I uttered a great cry as I sprang up in bed. Every detail of the horrific vision I recalled, and yet somehow it seemed to me that I had been the victim of a hideous nightmare. I felt ill, strangely ill. I was wet and clammy with perspiration, and nervous to a degree that I had never before experienced. Nevertheless, I noted everything distinctly. On the hearthstone there was still a mass of glowing red embers. I heard the distant booming of the sea, and round the house the wind moaned with a peculiar, eerie, creepy sound. Suddenly I sprang from the bed, impelled thereto by an impulse I was bound to obey, and by the same impulse I was drawn towards the door. I laid my hand on the handle. I turned it, opened the door, and gazed into the long, dark, 
corridor. A sigh fell upon my ears, an unmistakable human sigh, in which was expressed an intensity of suffering and sorrow that thrilled me to the heart. I shrank back, and was about to close the door, when out of the darkness appeared the glowing figure of a woman clad in blood-stained garments and with dishevelled hair. She turned her white, corpse-like face towards me, and her eyes pleaded with a pleading that was irresistible, while she pointed the index finger of her left hand downwards, and then beckoned me. Then I followed whither she led. I could no more resist than the unrestrained needle can resist the attracting magnet. Clad only in my night apparel, and with bare feet and legs, I followed the spectre along the corridor, down the broad oak stairs, traversing another passage to the rear of the building, until I found myself standing before a heavy, barred door. At that moment the spectre vanished, and I retraced my steps like one who walked in a dream. I got back to my bedroom, but how I don't quite know, nor have I any recollection of getting into bed. Hours afterwards I awoke. It was broad daylight. The horror of the night came back to me with overwhelming force, and made me faint and ill. I managed, however, to struggle through with my toilet, and hurried from that haunted room. It was a beautifully fine morning. The sun was shining brightly, and the birds carolled blithely in every tree and bush. I strolled out onto the lawn, and paced up and down. I was strangely agitated, and asked myself over and over again if what I had seen or dreamed about had any significance. Presently my host came out. He visibly started as he saw me. "'Hello, old chap. What's the matter with you?' he exclaimed. "'You look jolly queer, as though you had been having a bad night of it.' "'I have had a bad night.' His manner became more serious and grave. What? Seen anything? Yes. The juice? You don't mean it. Really? Indeed I do. I have gone through a night of horror such as I could not live through again. But let us have breakfast first, and then I will try and make you understand what I have suffered, and you shall judge for yourself whether any significance is to be attached to my dream, or whatever you like to call it. We walked, without speaking, into the breakfast-room, where my charming hostess greeted me cordially. But she, like her husband, noticed my changed appearance, and expressed alarm and anxiety. I reassured her by saying I had had a rather restless night, and didn't feel particularly well, but that it was a mere passing ailment. I was unable to partake of much breakfast— and both my good friend and his wife again showed some anxiety, and pressed me to state the cause of my distress. I recounted the experience I had gone through during the night of terror. So far from my host showing any disposition to ridicule me, as I quite expected he would have done, he became unusually thoughtful, and presently said, "'Either this is a wild fantasy of your own brain,' or there is something in it. 
The door that the ghost of the woman led you to is situated on the top of a flight of stone steps, leading to a vault below the building, which I have never used, and have never even had the curiosity to enter, though I did once go to the bottom of the steps. But the place was so exceedingly suggestive of a tomb that I shut it up, bolted and barred the door, and have never opened it since. I answered that the time had come when he must once more descend into that cellar or vault, whatever it was. He asked me if I would accompany him, and, of course, I said I would. So he summoned his head gardener, and after much searching about, the key of the door was found. But even then the door was only opened with difficulty, as lock and key alike were foul with rust. As we descended the slimy, slippery stone steps, each of us carrying a candle, a rank, mouldy smell greeted us, and a cold, noisome atmosphere pervaded the place. The steps led into a huge vault, that apparently extended under the greater part of the building. The roof was arched, and was supported by brick pillars. The floor was the natural earth, and was soft and oozy. The miasma was almost overpowering, notwithstanding ventilating slits in the wall in various places. We proceeded to explore this vast cellar, and found that there was an air shaft which apparently communicated with the roof of the house, but it was choked with rubbish, old boxes and the like. The gardener cleared this away, and then, looking up, we could see the blue sky overhead. Continuing our exploration, we noted in a recess formed by the angle of the walls a quantity of bricks and mortar. Under other circumstances, this would not, perhaps, have aroused our curiosity or suspicions, but in this instance it did, and we examined the wall thereabouts with painful interest, until the conviction was forced upon us that a space of over a yard in width and extending from floor to roof had recently been filled in. I was drawn towards the new brickwork by some subtle magic, some weird fascination. I examined it with an eager, critical, curious interest, and the thoughts that passed through my brain were reflected in the faces of my companions. We looked at each other, and each knew by some unexplainable instinct what was passing in his fellow's mind. "'It seems to me we are face to face with some mystery,' remarked Dick, solemnly. Indeed, throughout all the years I had known him, I had never before seen him so serious. Usually, his expression was that of good-humoured cynicism, but now he might have been a judge about to pronounce the doom of death on a red-handed sinner. Yes, I answered, there is a mystery, unless I have been tricked by my own fancy. Hmm. It is strange, muttered Dick to himself. Well, sir, chimed in the gardener, you know there have been some precious queer stories going about for a long time, and before you come and took the place, plenty of folks round about used to say they'd seen some uncanny sights. I never had no faith in them stories myself, but after all, maybe there's truth in them. Dick picked up half a brick, and began to tap the wall where the new work was, 
and the taps gave forth a hollow sound, quite different from the sound produced when the other parts of the wall were struck. "'I say, old chap,' exclaimed my host, with a sorry attempt at a smile, "'upon my word, I begin to experience a sort of uncanny kind of feeling. I'll be hanged if I am not getting as superstitious as you are. You may call me superstitious if you like, but either I have seen what I have seen, or my senses have played the fool with me. Anyway, let us put it to the test. How? By breaking away some of that new brickwork. Dick laughed a laugh that wasn't a laugh, as he asked, "'What do you expect to find?' I hesitated to say, and he added the answer himself. "'Moldering bones, if your ghostly visitor hasn't deceived you.' "'Moldering bones!' I echoed involuntarily. "'Gardner, have you got a crowbar amongst your tools?' Dick asked. "'Yes, sir. Go up and get it.' The man obeyed the command. "'This is a strange sort of business altogether,' Dick continued, after glancing round the vast and gloomy cellar. "'But, upon my word, to tell you the truth, I'm half ashamed of myself for yielding to anything like superstition. It strikes me that you'll find you're the victim of a trick of the imagination, and that these bogey fancies of yours have placed us in rather a ridiculous position.' In answer to this, I could not possibly resist reminding Dick that even scientists admitted that there were certain phenomena that could not be accounted for by ordinary laws. Dick shrugged his shoulders and remarked with assumed indifference, Perhaps, perhaps it is so. He proceeded to fill his pipe with tobacco, and having lit it he smoked with a nervous energy quite unusual with him. The gardener was only away about ten minutes, but it seemed infinitely longer. He brought both a pickaxe and a crowbar with him, and in obedience to his master's orders, he commenced to hack at the wall. A brick was soon dislodged, then the crowbar was inserted in the hole, and a mass prized out. From the opening came forth a sickening odour, so that we all drew back instinctively and I am sure we all shuddered. I saw the pipe fall from Dick's lips, but he snatched it up quickly, and puffed at it vigorously, until a cloud of smoke hung in the fetid and stagnant air. Then, picking up a candle from the ground where it had been placed, he approached the hole, holding the candle in such a position that its rays were thrown into the opening. In a few moments, he started back with an exclamation. "'My God! The ghost hasn't lied!' he said, and I noticed that his face was sheet-white. I peered into the hole, and so did the gardener, and we both drew back with a start, for there in the recess were decayed human remains. "'This awful business must be investigated,' said Dick. "'Come, let us go.' We needed no second bidding. We were only too glad to quit that place of horror, and get into the fresh air and bright sunlight. We verily felt that we had come up out of a tomb. Half an hour later, Dick and I were driving to the nearest town, 
to lay information of the awful discovery we had made. The subsequent search carried out by the police brought two bodies to light. Critical medical examination left not the shadow of a doubt that they were the remains of a woman and a girl, and each had been brutally murdered. Of course, it became necessary to hold an inquest, and the police set to work to collect evidence as to the identity of the bodies hidden in the recess in the wall. Naturally, all the stories which had been current for so many years throughout the country were revived. The chief topic was that of the strange disappearance of the wife and daughter of the last owner of the castle, Greta Jones. This story had been touched upon the previous night, during the after-dinner chat in my host's smoking-room. Jones, as was remembered, had gambled his fortune away, and married a lady much older than himself, who bore him a daughter who was subject to epileptic fits. When this girl was about twelve, she and her mother disappeared from the neighbourhood, and, according to the husband's account, they had gone to London. Then he left, and people troubled themselves no more about him and his belongings. A quarter of a century had passed since that period, and Bleak Hill Castle had gone through many vicissitudes, until it fell into the hands of Dick Dirkman. The more the history of Greta Jones was gone into, the more it was clear that the remains which had been bricked up in the cellar were those of his wife and daughter, that the unfortunate girl and woman had been brutally and barbarously murdered was beyond doubt. The question was, who murdered them? After leaving Wales, Greta Jones, as was brought to light, led a wild life in London. One night, while in a state of intoxication, he was knocked down by a cab, and so seriously injured that he died while being carried to the hospital, and with him is secret, for could there be any reasonable doubt that, even if he was not the actual murderer, he had connived at the crime? But there was reason to believe that he had killed his wife and child with his own hand, and that with the aid of a navvy whose services he bought, he bricked the bodies up in the cellar. It was remembered that a navvy named Howell Williams had been in the habit of going to the castle frequently, and that suddenly he became possessed of what was, for him, a considerable sum of money. For several weeks he drank hard. Then, being a single man, he packed up his few belongings and gave out that he was going to California, and all efforts to trace him failed. So much for this ghastly crime. As to the circumstances that led to its discovery, it was curious that I should have been selected as the medium for bringing it to light. Why it should have been so, I cannot and do not pretend to explain. I have recorded facts as they occurred. I leave others to solve the mystery. It was not a matter for surprise that— Mrs. Dirkman should have been deeply affected by the terrible discovery, and she declared to her husband that, if she were to remain at the castle, she would either go mad or die. And so poor Dick, who was devoted to his charming little wife, got out as soon as he could, and once more Bleak Hill Castle fell into neglect and ultimate ruin 
until at last it was razed to the ground, and modern buildings reared on its site. As for myself, that night of horror I endured under Dick's roof affected me to such an extent that my hair became prematurely grey, and even now, when I think of the agony I endured, I shudder with an indefinable sense of fear. Hello, ladies and gents, Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links.